It's time to experience the Synergy Connection Show with your host, Lucy Forsting. Good morning, everyone, once again to the Synergy Connection Show. Um, on this show, we do our best to connect the dots between our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual selves. And of course, 2020, the whole year, you know, taught us a lot about being healthy. And 2021, here we are, almost the middle of August, and we are still learning the importance of taking personal responsibility for our health and wellness across the board. I mean, it doesn't make any difference if it's physical wellness or emotional wellness these days, because everybody is so exhausted with hearing about COVID and now the Delta variant. And as of this morning, I was listening to them talk about uh, beginning next month, having uh, the uh, booster shot. So everyone who you know had taken the viral shots, uh, as they call them, the jab, uh, everyone who's done that is now looking at you know maybe every six months having to do a booster. So I will say once again, please, please, please consider that even if you are taking the vaccine, the importance of taking personal responsibility for your immune system and for the level of inflammation in your body is critical these days. Um, it's not just the vaccine that's gonna keep you healthy. So if you go to my website, uh, www.synergyconnectionradio.com, you will see a banner for Boomers Forever Young. I do use their products. They are a sponsor of the show, but I will tell you that my inflammation level, you want it below one, mine is a 0.3. And you want your immune system function to be over the number 70 and mine is an 80. And so you really, really owe it to yourself and to your family to do things like take vitamin D3. Uh, maybe use the uh, Boomer Gladiator Barley to reduce inflammation. Uh, maybe you want to take ashwagandha to keep your stress level low, because if your stress level is high, you're going to have more inflammation in your body. That's just the way stress works on us. So go and look at their testimonies. Go read maybe some of their blogs, watch some of their videos, sign up for their free newsletter. But do please take responsibility for doing your part to keep your body healthy. And, you know, the vaccine is going to probably keep you out of the hospital. Hopefully it's going to uh, keep you off of a respirator, but you have to do your part. And that's what I'm encouraging everybody to do. All righty. So having said all of that, um, I have back with me, Keith Long. He's a Harvard Neiman Foundation scholar. Uh, he's also Flor Florida Bar, I can't talk this morning, Florida Bar Certified for Continuing Law Education Credits. And Keith, you're over at Stetson, right? Uh, yes, I've, um, I, pre I present lectures and seminars at, uh, for the students and the faculty at Stetson Law School. Yeah, I know Stetson's an awesome school. You're also a moderator of Black Lives Matter and the Innocence Projects. And we've talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, that a little bit on the show in the past. And I think this is so cool. You're a lifetime FBI clearance person. I haven't met anyone who has ever been a lifetime FBI clearance individual. And um, you write for books to documentaries. And we're gonna be talking about Kaylee Anthony this morning. And you have a new book that is about her and about who is responsible for Kaylee's death. So what is the title of your book? Share with everybody. Well, thank you. And it's nice to be here uh, with you. And uh, I appreciate your, uh, your involvement in, uh, in, um, in physical and emotional and spiritual health as well. So the uh, title of the book, uh, which is about to be released is The Most Hated Woman in America. And that refers to Kaylee's mother, Casey Anthony. Okay, and how did she become the most hated woman in America? Well, um, that's a kind of a central question. It's a it's a kind of a good starting point to talk about uh, the subject and my book, 
Uh, I might start by saying that most people, well, let me ask you, do you, do you recognize the name Casey Anthony? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, well, my guess is that you recognize the name because it was a televised murder trial. Yeah, it was like O.J. Simpson's. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it was called the social media trial of the century. Um, and it was followed uh, uh, almost minute by minute by major networks and celebrities. Uh, uh, the Kardashians and uh, every the day show and you name it. And so the uh, the trial was televised and covered in the media quite extensively. And that's how Casey Anthony became a household name. And as far as how she became the most hated woman in America, the information about her behavior associated with the death of her two year old child, Kaylee, uh, kind of left the audience with no other conclusion except that she is a hateful, uh, murderous, uh, lying woman. And so that's pretty much where her, her brand, so to speak, has resided ever since then. And it's been a decade since the trial. And, uh, and so What's uh, there's a lot of a lot of interesting things about the trial. If I talk to somebody who I have never met before, and uh, I, they ask me what do I do, I say, well, I'm just about ready to launch a book. Oh, what it's about, and I say it's Casey Anthony, and that's all I have to say. <laughs> they know. <laughs> Not only that, but they get a uh, Lucy. They get a. They give me a chapter and verse recitation of uh, of the details of the case and the trial and what they thought about it and it's almost like time stood still mm. because she was acquitted right i remember seeing in fact on your book trailer that was great footage of how people responded you know when they were saying not guilty that's right, and uh, and there was a large audience watching the trial uh, verdict being announced, and there were three charges, including a capital murder charge, uh, which carried the death penalty, and uh, and the uh, jury listened to the complete trial, and the jury said that there was no evidence connecting her to the death of her daughter, and therefore they voted not guilty. And the so, response was just incredible from from those that they were they had the cameras on. Yes, they just could not believe that they could find her not guilty. Right, and uh, well, nobody basically could, and. Um, and uh, there's a reason why people felt that way. And one of them, one of the reasons is that she lied uh, about everything associated with Kaylee's death. Uh -huh. So it wasn't that she uh, was just kind of picked up and charged. It was that she was questioned and she lied uh, basically about everything associated with her daughter's death. And that became quite evident to the public, as well as to the investigators who decided to charge her for Kaylee's murder. And um, not only did she lie about the death, but she lied about her life with her family after Kaylee was born. So it was quite unusual. Her her life after Kaylee was born was spent in uh, in a commingling, a configuration of various lies. She left uh, the house every morning at nine o'clock with Kaylee on uh, in one uh, in one arm and uh, backpack in the other, and and she drove off and said, "I'm going to work, and I'm taking Kaylee to the nanny." every day for two years and with just like clockwork and it turned out uh once the investigation was begun uh -huh. she didn't have a job she didn't wasn't going to work 
she wasn't leaving Kaylee at a nanny and and but she insisted right to the end that all of that was true even though she couldn't prove it well it was a lie mm -hmm. yeah they disproved it uh they she they asked her it's a very simple it's a very simple thing for investigators to do they, they said okay you said you were working for a couple of years let's can we, do you mind if we ask you where and she said, no, I don't mind. It was at Universal Studios. <laughs> <laughs> and so they said, well, let's take a ride over and we'll talk to the HR department and your supervisor. And uh, when they got there, the police got there, they, they brought her along. And, um, and they said, well, we don't know anything about her. Really? And, yeah. And she didn't work here. And uh, sorry, we can't help you. So that was shot down immediately and quite easily. And how did Kayla, how did she actually respond knowing that they knew she had been lying? She just, um, so she's on tape in these interviews um, uh, answering that question. She was very like, okay, I guess you're right. <laughs> and I, I don't care, you know? So I, I said, yeah, I said I worked here, but I don't, okay. Next question. And, uh, and so that's the, that was a frustrating uh, suspect for the investigators to deal with because she, uh, all of her statements uh, associated with Kaylee and her family and Kaylee's death were like that. And uh, uh, it's like, I'm going to tell you my story. And if it turns out you find you confirm that it wasn't true, then okay, next question. And so she wasn't um, trying to rationalize or justify anything. So they eventually said, well, uh, listen, uh, you didn't take Kaylee, you, you didn't have a job. What did you do with Kaylee? Oh, I left her at a nanny. And, uh, and tell us about the nanny, the detective said. And, and she said, well, the nanny kidnapped Kaylee. That's why I don't have her with me anymore. So she had to have a reason why Kaylee was gone. And that was her reason. This nanny, who she nicknamed Zanny, um, kidnapped Kaylee. And she said, uh, she, she said, Zanny told me I wasn't a good mother and, and I'm going to keep her from you and she disappeared and so the detectives were like okay what do we do about this and uh so they looked for zanny and uh eventually they confirmed that that was a lie that zanny did not exist and never existed and uh, they had no place else to go i mean it was like so when they confronted her with that, she said, no, I, I, she was a real person. In my, in my mind, she was a real person and that's it. And uh, so that's what the detectives and the investigators were up against. Wow. In investigating the, and of course, none of this got them any closer to finding out how Kaylee was killed. So was there ever a point in time, because as a mental health professional myself, mm -hmm. I would be looking at Casey's responses as somebody who was clearly delusional. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of the obvious conclusion. And so she was, um, so by the way, I should mention, I was commissioned to report on this case and, and the trial by Harvard. And my uh, editor is Barry Sussman at Harvard, who worked for the Washington Post, and he supervised Woodward and Bernstein in the Watergate reporting. And then he moved over to Harvard. And uh, so I'm an investigative journalist, and my approach is different than media's uh, and journalism's approach today. I don't, I don't exclude information i don't mm -hmm. i don't say this is a false equivalency obviously the, the way i approached her i didn't say well she's obviously lying she's obviously guilty 
And so let's focus on her mm-hmm. and find out, find out how she did it. That's the way the media covered the trial. And uh, that's the way all of journalism covered the trial. Do you know, one of the things that I've even seen more recently is that um, I think the kind of journalism that you do is so needed, number one. You know, give me the facts, nothing but the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, I am seeing over and over again that instead of being innocent until proven guilty, we really have and have had for quite a while a position of you're guilty unless you're proven innocent. I don't know whether you see that as much as I do, but it's really discouraging because everything is so slanted. Right. There's a reason for it. I I happen to have, um, because I'm close to to colleagues who report the news, both on television and in print and on digital, um, and I talk to them. And so I, uh, I never overlook the obvious. That's the other principle I use in my reporting, which attracted me to Barry at Harvard. So I said to him, look, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to overlook the obvious in this case. And I'm not going to go in there with a point of view. And that appealed to him. But it didn't appeal to uh, journalism in general, because uh, journalists in general have a business model that informs their reporting. So they're not like people, unfortunately, uh, quite unfortunately, trust journalists. Uh And if I would say, what's the one thing people could do to to unbias the information they get from journalists, I would say, don't trust them. That's that's a good (laughs) start. But don't most of them in reality, you know, they're hired by, whether it's ABC, CBS, CNN, whoever the parent company is of those organizations has a philosophical view of life. And don't most of the reporters have to support that view if they wanna keep their job? Well, I think I would describe it a little differently. Um, uh, I would answer the question a little differently. I would say that um, that journalists report what their corporate business uh, employers want them to report. Uh-huh. And, and so what those people at the top of the food chain want is viewers or right. readers or clicks. And, uh, and so what they've decided to do is they have a business model to maximize revenue for advertisers and subscribers, and that is to give them what they want. So there's a lot of people in the world and there's a lot of people with different points of view. So what, what, what media companies do is they, they say, okay, we're going to target a particular audience profile. Uh And uh, so, for example, um, MSNBC and Rachel Maddow and uh, Joe Scarborough uh, is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson uh, on uh, Fox. So in both cases, they they both of those employers, Fox and uh, NBC, they, they use the same business model. It's just that their audience profile is different. In other words, they sorted things out so that, well, instead of Fox competing with NBC or NBC competing with Fox, they said, now it's too much waste of resources. We're gonna carve out our own audience, let Fox carve out theirs, and we're gonna see who can grow that audience the most. And that's what they do. And so no reporter, no journalist goes on to either one of those channels, for example, or the same thing is true of, uh, of print media like the New York Times or uh, um, Breitbart, things of that nature. Those are opposite sides of the same coin. Uh, nobody goes 
reporting for them unless it fits the audience profile. So what that means for a news consumer is, a news consumer is hearing a targeted message for their the the the, the business model of the of Fox or MSNBC, and it's biased blatantly, and it's one side, and the reason it's one side is because people want to hear what they already believe. Right. Right. And that attracts people to, <coughs> or to Rachel Maddow, and that's just fine with the corporate heads. And um, and the corporate heads give marching orders to the reporters and the producers and the editors to make sure that message is consistent. So is so, there anyone that actually gives information that's not biased? Yeah, I, I, I say um, my that's that's the obvious question. And and the obvious answer is uh, no. <laughs> that's not encouraging. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the way it is. So I don't trust myself, any journalist to uh, give me an unbiased report. Right. And um, and I have to catch myself listening to somebody who is attractive, who is polished, who is scripted, uh, who is um, who is performing and remind myself that as nice and as um, and as comfortable as they make me feel the content of their message is totally business oriented and structured mm -hmm. uh, as a business model these people are not out there to to be my friend in terms of informing me objectively they're in the business of capturing me and my spending dollars uh, whenever I'm listening to their reports. And or was it as bad 10 years ago when, you know, this whole thing with Casey Anthony and Kaylee and when it was on, you know, constant news, was it any better at that time than it is today? Or are we unraveling even more today? Well, I mean, uh, so a lot of people remember Nancy Grace. Mm-hmm. Who followed who she was on hln which is a part of cnn uh she, they made a fortune off of the trial um by covering it and nancy is a um she is a a uh, consummate uh performer and business model advocate hmm. for one one point of view and so and that's in the, in the casey case or the kaylee case that's what people wanted to hear. There's, there's this woman who lied about the death of her child. And I didn't mention that she went and shacked up with a boyfriend beginning the day of her daughter's death. And uh, she would have stayed with him forever, basically. And she went, he owned a nightclub. And so she went to his nightclub and acted like, like nothing had changed. Wow. Even even though her two-year-old was dead. Was dead, all right. So the public saw all this. And just like the audience reaction in my trailer, uh, where they couldn't believe the acquittal by the jury, they were incensed. The public was unbelievable. They couldn't believe their ears that anybody could pronounce the words not guilty with uh, with Casey Anthony as the subject. Mm -hmm. And they reacted that way. And that's pretty much the way people wanted to hear news about her. And it's like, okay, what else did she lie about today? And they would pretty much get it from Nancy. And, uh, and so HLN made their bones, so to speak, on that trial. And, um, and so did the other networks begin to uh, develop their model of capturing an audience that tunes into them or reads them or goes online with them because they know what they're going to hear. So people who tuned into Nancy, including myself, 
knew what they were going to hear. Every time, without fail, no compromise. And that's exactly what they got. Mm -hmm. So, and so the answer to your question is no, it wasn't, it wasn't any better. It was, it was in its infancy, so to speak, a decade or so ago. Mm -hmm. And um, been fine tuned since then. Well, it's, yeah, it's been, uh, right, it's been uh, refined. It's so that it's, you get, it's maximizing profits mm -hmm. um, uh, for the media. And, and as far as the, the, the trial is concerned, um, the trial itself was live streamed. And so people got a chance to, to watch the trial um, live, unfiltered. And they did. And when the verdict was read, there was millions of people, uh, 10 million or so, watching just the verdict mm -hmm. in the middle of the day, in the summer. And, um, and so uh, people got a chance to, to hear the evidence and to uh, hear the others, the defense side response to the evidence. And, and even then they felt that well based on what they heard and the reporting on what they heard they still concluded that that this woman was evil and that she's no doubt got away with murder uh -huh. Huh. so into that milieu i walk right <laughs> so i walk into it as a, a journalist who is looking for both sides of a narrative. Uh-huh. And at Harvard, I, uh, and with Barry, Barry wasn't getting paid by the amount of audience that my reporting could generate or steal from HLN or whatever. He was a journalist. And by the way, he disagreed with uh, Bernstein and Woodward about some of the stuff that they promoted in the Watergate series. But so he was a uh, old school journalist with Ben Bradley, the publisher of the Post. And now he was at Harvard and he just said, go ahead and report. And uh, what I found is that there was a side of the narrative that explains her lies and her denial of her own daughter's death that was never reported. And what was that? That was what I report in the book. Okay. Can you give us a little bit of a hint? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. So you started uh, to, to kind of go down the path where you, you, um, your instincts probably took you there because of your background in, in mental health. The, um, the obvious thing was that, that her denial and her lies and she didn't grieve at the death of her daughter. She pretended like nothing had changed. Right. And she uh, basically wasn't dealing with it. That would suggest some kind of a sociopath or severe mental ill uh, psychopathy. Mm -hmm. And so that was not missed on, on people involved in the trial. And there were 11 psychologists who evaluated her. 11, wow. Right. And so two of them were questioned by prosecutors in detail after they did a full psychological evaluation of her uh, in person um, with uh, all of the background information, all of the tests. Um, they were asked to see if she fit what they call a DSM category. Right. That's a category of, of mental illness, so to speak. And, uh, and so they gave the prosecutors that those, their reports and they were questioned about them in detail. Were they both identical in their reports? They were pretty much, yeah. They were pretty much, and both of them, one of them was a psychiatrist, one was a psychologist, um, one of them, was not happy about being associated with a report that had the findings that his did. 
and he told the prosecutors that he said he asked to be excused because of his reputation. He didn't want his reputation to suffer if anybody thought that he was in any way defending this woman. But the prosecutors were not sympathetic. And they said, no, we're going to question you in detail. And you're going to tell us what you found. And um, so that's what they did. And, they, and their, their reports and their question and their interviews, both of them were days long and they were recorded and transcribed. And so this is where the information in the trial uh, is, it's not unusual for a trial to prevent information about a case from being included for their for legal reasons. And in this case, the lawyers uh, asked the prosecutor, Linda Drain Burdick, and the judge, Judge Perry, to seal those interviews and keep them from the public. Mm. And that's what the judge did. So none of the evaluations of her and her description of what happened to them made it to the live stream trial. But they were transcribed. And me being an investigative journalist, and me being interested in what information is not reported, right? as opposed to my colleagues in journalism, I got my sticky little hands on those reports. And I read them in their entirety. And in those reports is an explanation that is evaluated by these uh, court appointed forensic psychologists and their conclusions about the validity of what she was telling them. And that's what I include in the book. And uh, basically that information is like a ticking time bomb for the prosecution and the media that only wanted one point of view portrayed. So and, let me ask you a question. Yeah. You know, with, um, I know that you cannot, if you're acquitted, like OJ Simpson was, you can't be retried for the same crime. Right. Um, <clears throat> so will the person who is and was responsible for Kaylee's death, will that ever be uncovered, do you think? Or is yeah. this one of those situations where that person is just going to go scot-free? I think that um, uh, that the answer is yes. The 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 killer, I think, will be uh, revealed, and I I think the killer is revealed in my book. Uh, if Casey is the killer, uh, she would not be charged. So if she wanted to, she could come out and say, "Okay, um, I'm finally ready to admit that I killed Kaylee," or she was drowned in the pool, whatever her story is, doesn't make any difference. Whatever it was, she could say it and she would not be charged. That's over the, that's past history. Mm -hmm. She has a legal protection against double jeopardy. It's a, uh, there's no federal crimes involved. It's 10 years since. And so there's nothing stopping her from doing it. But of course, I happen to know, um, uh, things about her um, that inform me that, that she would never do that. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there, if somebody else is the killer, that person would be in jeopardy. If, oh, if she knows that person, she may not ever want to reveal it. Well, I mean, that's part of the possible reason why she never said anything. So, um, but on the other hand, she lied about everything. So how could anybody believe whatever she says? Well, uh, that's true. So she could say, well, I didn't do it, but so-and-so did it. Who would believe her? Exactly. 
So, uh, you know, and um, so that's the situation. So the way I approach my reporting and the, uh, the way I approach the writing of the book is to, I set all that aside, so I'm not interested in and what's believable by my readers. I'm interested in giving my readers the information so that they can judge themselves what they think. And whatever they think, I don't know, I'll, I'll know when they think it. And that's what a reporter is, in my world is supposed to do. And I don't, uh, I'm, not, I'm not slanting the book to get most eyeballs. First of mm -hmm, all, mm -hmm. I don't have to. All I have to do is mention her name and people will want to read the book. And, um, and so that kind of like answers itself. It's like, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to promote it. Right. But I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, as somebody who obviously will read your book, um, you know, I'll be thrilled to read it, but I guess I'm also wondering as the book ends, Am I going to be frustrated because this is a crime that may go unpunished? And, you know, that's just the way life sometimes is, is that, you know, you you get to commit a crime and you don't really suffer the consequences. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, part of that, that is definitely part of life. And um, and it's informative of the justice system uh, that that I think people should be aware of. I'm aware of it. Uh -huh. uh, the justice system is not always just. Uh, and to answer your question, it's it's really a a personal question. I, I would say this: as somebody who report is reporting the information, I have an opinion, uh -huh. and I believe that I know who killed Kaylee Anthony, uh, without a doubt. And uh, but. But I'm not telling my readers, here is the person who killed Kaylee Anthony, either right. somebody else. Right. I'm reporting. And if somebody asks me, yeah, I, I'm solid. I think I know who killed Kaylee Anthony and how and why. And those are all, you know, critical pieces of information. Yeah. Well, I know that. Yeah, I know that one of the things you do at Stetson is that you help um, teach prosecutors and public defenders, um, you know, how people can get away with a crime so that they can approach it differently or maybe with a little more knowledge. And so that would be part of this book, too. Right. Is that, you know, as you read the book, you can see how things were skewed so that the real I guess killer, you know, never ever was revealed. Right, and and um, and part of the defense. So a defense attorney's job is not to find justice for his or her client. A defense attorney's job, a criminal defense attorney, is there to introduce doubt. Uh -huh. They're successful if they can introduce doubt about their client's guilt. Right. And so what Jose Baez, the defense attorney for Casey Anthony did was do that. And um, uh, uh, one of the ways he did that was to talk about um, the drowning uh, option as an explanation for Kaylee's death, an accidental drowning. Uh -huh. And because that's what he had to work with and that was his best route to to making his client look innocent. If the baby, if the child died accidentally in the backyard pool, uh, then it's pretty difficult to execute the baby's mother for murder. And that was his defense theory in a few words. And uh, so it's the prosecutor's job to say, you know, we can't go around arresting people and then executing them unless we convince a jury of peers for that person that there is no doubt this person is guilty of the crime they were charged with without a doubt. 
And absent that standard, you can't convict a person and then execute them. Sorry, but you're going to have to come back and say, there is no doubt we believe this person is guilty. So the jury in the Casey Anthony trial came back and said, okay, we've listened to the prosecutor. We've listened to the accidental drowning theory. Uh, the prosecutor thought that Casey bought some chloroform somewhere uh, and used chloroform to sedate Kaylee and then put duct tape over her uh, lips and mouth to suffocate her. So this was a complicated two-step murder uh, that the prosecutor offered the jury as evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant they charged was the one who killed her and this was how she did it. And the jury said, what in the hell are you talking about? There was no evidence of chloroform anywhere in terms that associated itself with Casey. Uh -huh. Nothing with duct tape involved with Casey. And then the defense attorney brought all of the friends of Casey in who were around her with Kaylee. And the prosecutor said, what kind of a mother was she with Kaylee? Did she, was she indifferent? Was she not a good mother? And all of these friends said, no, she was an ideal mother. So in a nutshell, as far as the trial is concerned, and, and the trial is, uh, is a case where the prosecutors present their evidence, the defense attorneys present theirs, and that's what the jury and the public, if it's televised, hear. And so the, the jury and the public heard this theory of the murder and the jury, which has the obligation to say there's no doubt, the public doesn't need a standard of no doubt. They just say, eh, I don't like her. Uh -huh. Let's kill her. It's okay with me, you know? And, uh, but the jury says, they went through a process and they're sworn and they're getting instructions from the judge and the instructions are very ex explicit and they hear the uh, arguments and they have to say that this theory of that the prosecutor offered is is valid beyond a reasonable doubt beyond any doubt right and so if they don't there's only one thing for them to do and that's to equip and that's what they did. Mm -hmm. hmm. um, isn't that, I mean, you're involved with the Innocence Project. And isn't that a lot of what happens there? A little bit of what you were saying is, you know, a, a jury can just look at somebody and go, well, I don't like them, you know, whatever reason. And so, you know, they will go in the direction of they're guilty and not be listening um, in an unbiased way at the facts. And I think maybe that was happening in this case with, because of the way everything was presented. And like you said, you know, she was the most hated woman in America because we're all about children and, you know, apple pie and, and being good parents. And so she was painted as this individual who was horrific with her child and her child died. And so I'm glad that your book is going to kind of level the playing field, so to speak, and, and give maybe a little more unbiased information as to how this might have gone down. Because, and like you said, you know, my background of 35 years as a therapist, I would have been listening to that and going, we have a seriously mental ill child here that was a mother. Um, and, and there's, you know, all kinds of things that we don't know about her background that might have led to this, but that's where we need to be going is looking at what on earth was going on in this person's mind to make these delusional statements and think she could get by with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the psychiatrists, um, there were 11, uh, they all agreed that there was no uh, category of DSM that she fit into. <laughs> okay. And, um, and there's a, re I talked to one of them all day and I, there's a reason for that. 
which I go into. Uh -huh. Also, as, as far as your point on, um, on uh, the way the justice system works and whether the jury, uh, the jury convicts people who are innocent or maybe innocent, uh, my take on it is a little different. I don't blame juries. So in this case, there is a lot of evidence that does point to uh, an individual uh, besides Casey as the killer. And the way the system works is that a prosecutor uh, is elected as a assistant state attorney locally. And um, what the public wants is one of the inputs that prosecutors factor into their charging decisions. Uh -huh. And in this case, they had a gift. They had going in a gift from the public of the most hated per woman in America and her behavior. And there wasn't anybody else they were going to charge in order to get a conviction. A conviction was, in their world, uh, a fait accompli. It was a foregone conclusion. It was, let's get this over as a formality and let's get on with the rest of the punishment. Uh -huh. And in the process of doing that, uh, they kind of failed to investigate people that perhaps, as it turns out, were guilty as sin. Uh -huh. and, um, and so that's the way the system works. And so if somebody said, what is the Innocence Project uncover uh, that explains innocent people being convicted, I would say it's not the juries. It's the system of charging and prosecuting innocent people. That is the reason that that the Innocence Project is so successful. Right. Right. And, and it could be that that is the case here. Hmm. Well, it's fascinating. I know that. And uh, I'm, I'm sure. Now, when is your book going to be released? Let's let everybody know that. It's going to be released in the uh, fall. And I'm going to have pre-orders uh, for your listeners who are interested on my website, Journalist on Call. Journalist on Call. So is, is it journalistoncall.com? Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. And I would think that that would be a, a good thing for people to sign up for if they want to maybe know a lot of the truth behind the decision. It's an interesting family dynamic uh, that is revealed uh, from the evidence. And um, uh, I didn't mention, uh, I didn't really mention her parents. Cindy and George are key players in the story development. And uh, just to give your your listeners a sense of, of what I've reported, uh, Kaylee is the centerpiece of the reporting. Kaylee introduced fear for everybody. Uh -huh. When Kaylee was born, everybody in that family was afraid of her. They were scared to death of her. What was the reason? Well, um, it, they had a tight family uh, dynamic going on that they, that everybody in the family was dependent upon. When I say everybody, I mean Cindy, George, and Casey. Um, and what Kaylee did suddenly was introduce doubt about who was the father of Kaylee. So that means that, for example, if the father of Kaylee was a member of the Anthony family, all of a sudden that introduces legal exposure for that person, um, for, uh, for that sexual assault uh, of a family member. Also, for the wife of that person, there is the destruction of a marriage uh, the loss of equity in the home and assets of that marriage. Uh, 
pretty much it's a loss of career. It's a disaster for the spouse of a sex abuser. Right. And all of that traces back to the parentage of Haley. So she's a uh, like a loose cannon. Everybody was afraid of her, big time. Mm -hmm. And that explains everything. Right, right. All righty. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Um, I know that uh, at your particular show, I have a few people that I really love interviewing because it does require you to listen with a different set of ears, if you will. And, and think outside that box, because so often, uh, like you said, with the news, the way it is today and journalism, the way it is now, uh, we are being talked to quite differently than once upon a time when it was more factual news and we got to kind of arrive at our own conclusions. Now we're being catered to. And so if our thoughts a run along the lines of uh, Fox News, then that's where we go and we're being reinforced. And if it goes along the lines of CNN or, you know, one of the other programs, I, I like to listen to the public broadcasting station as much as anything, because I feel like maybe there is a slight indication of truth uh, that filters down through them, but I'm not even sure about that anymore. So um, I love having you provide us with the ability to, like I said, think outside that box. So I appreciate you being on the show, Keith. Uh, tell people once more, the book is coming out in the fall. They'll be able to pre-order a copy on journalistoncall.com. Right. And the yeah. most hidden woman in America is the title. And it was a pleasure uh, talking with you and uh, and with your uh, listeners as well. Well, thank you again for uh, just being a part of the show. Um, go out there and make it your best life, everyone. And uh, tune in next time to the Synergy Connection show. Thanks so much. Boomers Forever Young is really making a name for themselves as an exciting nutritional company with products that really work. People from all over the country are starting to take notice. Their whole person approach to health and wellness, combined with their unique array of powerful natural health products, are setting them apart from all the other companies in the nutrition industry. Their customers love the one-on-one -on -one free consultations and the results they experience. Sound a little too good to be true? Then go online to boomerboost.com today and sign up for a free consultation with a product specialist or just give us a call at 1-800-861-4609. Again, that's boomerboost.com or call 1-800-861-4609 to join the thousands already experiencing the benefits of Boomers Forever Young products.